Hello and welcome to The Price of Football, the show that looks at the money behind the beautiful game and is currently getting its excuses ready ahead of tonight's big, big match. I'm Kevin Day, supporter of God's own team, and he's Kieran Maguire, Brighton fan. Come on, Kieran, we're bigger than that. Let's not bring God into this. We... <laughs> you nervous? Oh, I'm absolutely terrified. Yeah. I, I, I hate I hate playing Palace. It's yeah. It, yeah. Every time you get the ball in our half, I'm going, oh, oh Jesus well, Christ, they're going to score, they're going to get a breakaway, or we're going to get an own goal. Yeah, it, it, it's a horrible, horrible... Not it's, it's not just the 90 minutes, because beforehand it's always a bit, you know, it's a bit tense. Mm. Uh, and and afterwards it can, uh, yeah, especially if we lose, it's just an abomination. Yeah, well, an abomination. That's worse than an abomination, isn't it? That's a double <laughs> exactly. abomination. But I, I wouldn't worry about too much about us getting the ball in your half. I'm more worried about Fulham, to be perfectly honest. There's, there's little shifty little buggers sneaking up on us. Uh, anyway, Kieran, it's it's um, it's questions day, uh, but we do have a couple of big news stories to discuss first, uh, not the least the success of our quiz last night once again. Who knew that what this partly evidence had come back? No, I was amazed. Yeah. Well, I was amazed that you were so excited, considering you'd never had your lips around one, but um, that's a dangerous thing to say as well. Well, um, especially, yeah. <laughs> that, that actually relates to one of the questions. No, we, we, we won't talk about one of the let's questions. Not, let's, not, let's not, no. let's not do it, because it happened last night, Kieran, remember? Yes. <laughs> um, the big story, Kieran, is National League North and South, uh, they've both voted to declare the season over, null and void, done, finished, extinct so that's that then or is it well on, on first glance it is but we've got uh i think we've got gloucester city mm. who mysteriously are in national league north yes uh yeah i'm 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 not great on geography but yeah i know it, yeah well it's north um, of us anyway let's put it's it north, that north way. of us yeah yeah, yeah. Well, most places are north of me to be that's fair. true fair point um yeah. And they are saying, well, there was sort of half a dozen clubs that did want the season to continue. So why don't we have our own little competition yeah. instead? Because they're doing quite well. Um, Dorking as well, I think. You were the head of National League South yeah. saying the same thing. They're both looking to take legal advice, apparently. Uh, so so they, the, the, there, were, there were a series of votes which looked increasingly complicated. Uh, the National League itself has voted to carry on the season. Yeah. The National Leagues North and South both voted to uh, have the season declared null and void. But then the National League appeared to have come out and said, oh, by the way, there's going to be promotion and relegation. Right. And you're going, well, okay, but if you take a look at the tables, we've got some clubs in National League North having played eight, 18 games and other clubs having played only 11. So points per game seems... Very, very harsh to to judge any way, shape, or form who goes up or down. Um, and, and then, if you think about promotion from National League North and South, it's it's done on a playoff basis. So, mm-hmm. if the uh, you know, if if they're trying to do if, if they declare the season null and void, what happens there? Are they going to host a little separate competition? There's not a lot of white smoke coming out of the the chimney of the National League itself, which isn't helping things. And uh, everybody's taking pot shots. 
that there are vested interests in this, and there's nothing wrong with saying yeah. we've got a vested interest, yeah, yeah, i.e., we're at the arse end of the table, we've got nothing to play for, yeah, what's the point? Equally, we've got some clubs saying, well, yeah, we're having a fantastic season, uh, it, it seems harsh to punish us. So, you know, you, you can understand clubs operating in their own best interests, J- just, just be fair and come out and say that, but it's... Uh, uh, it's it's going to drag on, uh, sadly, for a, for a while longer. And uh, you know, if, if I if if I had a silver tongue, I'd be rubbing my hands together with glee at present. I think there's a little bit of work around the corner. Yeah, well, I was going to say we could probably ask our friend Nick DeMarco, but I doubt if anybody at that level can afford Nick DeMarco. To be perfectly honest, but you know, Kieran, if your team's not playing on a Saturday afternoon, it's it's an actual pleasure to sit back and relax and watch Jeff Stelling uh, introduce the scores. I mean, it's a masterclass of broadcasting, but he was pretty much, and he, you know, his team Hartlepool operate in the National League, and he was pretty much saying as National League scores came in that apart from the four or five teams that were involved at the top, he just kept saying, well, these are meaningless games because no one's going down by the look of it. Hmm. Um, so why are we playing these games? If, if, the, if the idea is that we need to save money for these clubs at these levels, these games are pointless. And it seems that the, the two clubs leading, there's been an 18-club petition trying to overturn this decision. And their legal advice, apparently, is based on the fact that there are no alternative offers to declaring the season null and void. They were given just that option, should we declare it null and void, which which is an interesting one. But all this, this idea that the clubs that could probably get possibly get promoted carry on playing games in their own minor league seems an odd one. But it's like you say, it's not... It's not going to go away, and sometimes it makes you it makes you wonder about the naivety of the people running these leagues. You think, well, we've had a vote that that will put an end to it. When clearly there's so much at stake for the clubs that could get into, you know, either into the national league or from the national league into League Two. Yeah, I think the the decisions have have been made too quickly, that they, and the the potential consequences mm. don't appear to have been thought through. You would think there would be a period of consultation before and, and trying to get a bit more consensus, but it does seem now that there's a lot of distance between quite a few of the clubs and those at the head of the National League. Now, now clearly, you know, given that some of the clubs have petitioned for uh, some of the executives of the National League to, to be sacked, or things of that nature, you, there, there is a breakdown in relationships, and, and relationships are are critical regardless of the business. You know, and football is a very emotional business, but if you've got poor relationships between executives and uh, and industry corporations, then there are going to be problems. We know we have experienced football people at the head of the national leagues, and I'd be really intrigued to hear from them if, if producer guy would like to invite some of them. On because that lack of consultation is even more baffling when you work out what that cost them before the decision to allocate the money from the national lottery because there was no real consultation about that and that bit them in the bum. So you'd think the last thing they would do is make decisions without due process beforehand. But as I say, there's no point you and I speculating about that. But if somebody from the National League would be happy to come on and have a grown-up discussion, we'd be very happy. Um Talking of grown-ups, Kieran, uh, uh, Sunderland, finally, it seems, have been... Uh, did you hear that old cliche about you You know you're getting old when policemen look look much younger? Um, and <laughs> the club owners can't be 23, Kieran, but Sunderland, it looks like it's done and dusted at Sunderland. Yes, yes, it has all now been confirmed. Uh, Louis Dreyfus has taken over. Uh, we're not quite sure what percentage of the club he's acquired. I think it's around about 84 um, there's, there's talk that Stuart Donald still owns some. 
and and the Uruguayan politician still owns a portion of the club, uh, whether they are looking for exit routes or, or whether they're going to try to hang on in the hope that uh, Louis Dreyfus can get Sunderland back to the Premier League and therefore they can sell their stakes for, for higher fees, we, we don't yet know. Um, but I, I think it's... Uh, it's good news for the fans that uh, Stuart Donald came in. He said all the right things, um, but you've got to walk the walk as well. And uh, some of the issues in relation to Sunderland, such as uh, yeah, the writing off some of the loans owed by the club, looked looked uncomfortable. Um, and it appeared that he was just trying eventually to, uh, a bit like uh, you know we, we see with Dion Dublin and Holmes Amalhammer, he, he effectively came in, tried to flip the club, make a bit of money uh, and, and disappear uh, without spending too much money himself. And, and that, that's come back to bite him, I think, certainly reputationally. And again, if uh, Dion Dublin's listening, if he'd like to come on and, and explain his fascination with stairs... On homes under the hammer, which we're all fascinated with Dion's fascination with stairs. It's, it's how you get from one floor to the other, says Dion on a weekly basis. Um, final news story, Kieran, and it's possibly a good one. As you predicted just last week, the UK government has offered to host the entire Euros if necessary because they're so optimistic about the progress of the vaccination and various other things. So, um, from from a purely home centric point of view, this has got to be good news, and it seems to make sense as well. We've got the we've got the logistics and the infrastructure for it, haven't we? Yes. So there wouldn't need to be any stadia built because we've we've already got enough grounds which will hold forty thousand. Um, there's good transport links. Whether fans will be allowed or what what numbers will be fans be allowed is is yet uncertain. Uh, it, it, Oliver Dowden, I think, would be very pleased, and I think the government would be very pleased because uh, the the success of the vaccination to date has certainly increased optimism. Um, my only concern is if it if it doesn't if it does take place and then infections rise on the back of it, it will look pretty awful. Uh, but we, we certainly have got the capacity to do it. Uh, it. It's now really a case of what what's UEFA's approach. Uh, you know, they. They, I think, will be reluctant to have it taking place in so many different centres. Mm. Uh, although, you know, we, we have seen in respect of the Champions League and uh, the Europa League that we are muddling through, even if some of the matches are taking place at, at random venues. Yeah, whatever you think of this government, Kieran, um, it, it does seem that if something appears in the Sunday Times... There is some truth in it, and I make no link whatsoever between the Sunday Times and its relationship with Michael Gove. That's probably just coincidence. But the Sunday Times reporting yesterday that both football and music are expected to be allowed to have people in by the end of May would indicate that there is some thought towards getting the years, and it would be a big feather in the. You know, let's face it. There's an election coming up in a couple of years. That's the sort of thing they would point to, isn't it? We got. We got the Euros, but it is kind of good news. It's kind of optimistic news, and it, it, it looks at least as though the tournament will be going ahead, which we weren't convinced by in January, were we? No, no. I, I think the fact that football has managed to get through this far, um, and, and we've had a return to UEFA's uh, club competitions, surely the logic would be that the, yeah. the the national competitions must be able to take place as well. And you won't get your trip to Moscow, Kieran. That's the only downside. Well, I, I think I'm still barred. 
<laughs> Never mind. Uh, yes, yeah, so that was mentioned at the quiz last night. Patrick Green uh, is our first question, as it's questions day. For those of you who don't know, for new listeners, we do news stories on a Thursday and we do questions on uh, a Monday. Well, it's still it's, lockdown might be lifting slightly, Kieran, but it's too hard to know what day of the week it is. Patrick Green says, I have become a big fan of your show, having binge listened to all the episodes while I work part time in a boring accounting practice in Belfast. Firstly, Patrick, don't binge listen. Always listen responsibly. And secondly, <laughs> uh, I, I can't actually see Kieran's face, but I can imagine the look on it at the notion, the notion of a boring accountancy job. That simply won't. Uh, but Kieran won't be able to counsel us that. But Patrick reveals, Kieran, that he's an accounting student. You might like to rethink that, Patrick, considering you find it so boring. Um, but Patrick's also a football fan and a player of amateur league football in Hollywood over there in Northern Ireland. What are the chances, uh, Kieran, says uh, Patrick, this is a good general question, of Northern Irish football growing financially? Um, and we've talked about the new UEFA competition for clubs. But what possible benefit could that competition bring to clubs financially? Um, well, if, if we take a look at those questions in turn for Patrick, um, in terms of the potential growth of Northern Ireland football, I think it will be pretty challenging. Um, if, if you take a look at uh, the, the the three main sources of revenue for a football club, you've got ticket sales, broadcasting and commercial. Mm. Now, if, if we take a look at the, the Northern Ireland Premiership, we've got five clubs who have got ground capacities of two and a half thousand or less. So you've Cliftonville, Coleraine, Newry, Ards and Warren Point. So you, even if there's some sort of uptick, you know, you know, perhaps post-COVID people want to go out and meet up at football matches and so on, there's an automatic ceiling uh, due to the capacity of the grounds. Yeah. The, the broadcast deal real, realistically isn't going to be there because – you're competing against Sky Sports and BT, who have got the Premier League matches, um, and also, yeah, we, we've got to we've got to be honest and take into consideration the the historical links with uh, with both England and Scotland. So that means yeah. that there are many football fans in Northern Ireland who will automatically be supporting. Celtic, Rangers, Manchester United, Liverpool, Arsenal, because so I think there's there's a there's sort of a there's a history and heritage issue which automatically caps the 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 capacity of the domestic game. Um, Certainly, the the success of the national team can can increase interest, but that automatically tends to, to to fade once the domestic season starts because. All the talk, all the newspapers are, are focusing on the the major clubs uh, who who are getting the the existing broadcasting from from Sky and BT and the BBC and so on. I mean, you know, there, there is coverage in in, in Northern Ireland TV. Um, Kieran, can I just jump in there because it it seems every now and again on on Sky and it seems very random, very arbitrary. You will once in a, in a in a four week period turn Sky on, and there is Northern Irish football, but. There seems to be no rhyme nor reason for how many times it's on or what games they choose. So there must be some amount of money. Obviously, it's not very big. Yeah, the trouble is, if, it, if it's not very big, it means that the clubs can't pay much out in wages. Oh, okay, right. Um, so if if we sort of take a look at, a, at Linfield, Linfield uh, in twenty eighteen they generated eight hundred grand of revenue as a club. Oh, right. Okay, it's not that a lot, that puts them on a par with. National League North, National League right. South clubs. Okay. 
Um, if they get and and, and the, 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 their escape route is Europe. Yeah. So when they got into the Europa League playoffs uh, in 2019, that trebled their income, but that still was taking them up to you know a, a say a top half national league, bottom half of the uh, of uh, League Two, and that's only one club. Um, so I think there's a natural ceiling in terms of what can be achieved there. Um, but that sort of leads us into the UEFA Conference League, which is starting in 2021-22. Uh, is it? Uh, and, and I'm amazed you know, that so few people are talking about it. <laughs> yeah, with so little going on at the moment, you'd think this would be a massive talking point, wouldn't you? Exactly. Yeah. Um, and the one thing which intrigues me about this, uh, at present, UEFA split their uh, split their prize money, which comes from the TV companies. Eighty percent goes to the Champions League, which has uh, you know, th- presently thirty two teams, and twenty percent goes to the Europa League, which has forty eight teams. Um, when this new competition comes in, and I think we're moving to 32, 32, 32, I can't see the clubs in the Champions League giving up their 80%. So the amount of money involved in the Conference League, and and I think clubs from Northern Ireland, and this is where it could be of benefit, in theory, I think they're going to have three qualifying teams for the, for the knockout stage before you get into the group stage. Um, so it could involve a wee bit more money, but even so, if you are a good player, um, you know you'll get. I suspect you're going to be snapped up by mm. uh, clubs in, in England and Scotland because you don't have to be generating a lot more money to be generating more money than the biggest club in Northern Ireland. Mm. There will be a, a glorious time in a year or two, Kieran, when you're getting very angry about the Europa Conference League. And I'd say, come now, Kieran, we've, we've, we've only just come out of a pandemic. Let's calm down about this. But in, <laughs> in, the, in the meantime, I can't imagine anybody getting really, really carried away for or against the Europa Conference League. But, you know, better times are ahead. Steve Cutler is a Bristol Rovers fan. And has always been interested in football finance, he says, because until recently, Rovers have basically only been one bouncing check away from a crisis. He would like any information on the club and their seemingly forward-thinking and big-picture board. Any information would be welcome, he says. And, and this is a bit of a gear change, Steve, how do footballers' pensions work? So what is the value? Who pays it and from who? See, this is people have a go at me for sounding like the Now Show, but if, if, if people send questions in with that massive gear change... I can't help but come over all whatever that bloke used to do gymnastics is. <laughs> anyway, so Bristol Rovers first. And then, how do footballers' pensions work? Right. Um, well, Bristol Rovers have been owned by uh, Wayal Al-Qadi for the last five years. Um, so he, took, he acquired the club in February 2016. If you are from a Middle East background... The first reaction of a fan base is, well, hey, yeah. we're the new Manchester City. Yeah, of course. Um, and it, it turns out he's, by, by, by you know, your standards and my standards, he's a wealthy man. But, you know, most people are wealthy compared to you and I, Kevin. So, Fair point. Um, so he, he does have some money, uh, without doubt. Um, Bristol Rovers have been losing around about 60 grand a week pre-pandemic. So oh, they were okay. certainly being funded by him. 
Um, and it, and it, I think the club is operated and controlled via Jersey through a company called Dwayne Sports. And, and this is where I always start to get slightly twitchy when people are using uh, you know, offshore companies. But you know, the, the money constantly has come in. Um, in 2019, I think initially things weren't great in terms of the relationship. There was a striking off, off order, which came from Companies House in 2019. That that, that was dealt with. Um, okay. and then, what, what's striking off order, sorry? Striking off order is effectively for the company to be wound up. Oh, okay. So you know, the, it hadn't submitted documentation. It was late with this, that, and the other. Uh, people, people were not happy with oh, okay. the way it was uh, running itself from a, from a governance point of view. Uh, they, and what clubs always say, oh, admin error, blah blah blah. But yeah. you know, it, it's it's a bit like when the when the tax man asks you for some money, they normally ask three or four times with. So they start off politely and move to slightly more narky before they will finally say, right, we'll meet you in court. Um, yeah, Companies House takes, takes the same approach. Yeah, we normally go straight to narky now. <laughs> saves a lot of time. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Kim, just while we're on the subject, that striking off order, because this, this is something that's completely uh, new to me, even after a year of doing this pod. Is that something, without mentioning the names of these clubs that we've talked about recently that haven't provided account details is that something that they should be worried about i mean are you talking about three or four years of of nothing or you know just a year of not providing accounts is that enough to start getting companies house twitchy um theoretically it could happen to any club i mean it, I mean, it did happen to palace a couple of years ago and, and, I, and i was surprised at the time because palace had normally submitted their accounts on time they were late one year um and it, it's it doesn't appear to be done automatically uh and and there are other companies who haven't submitted any accounts for five or six years, and the striking off order doesn't apply. So oh, um, I, I don't know how the algorithms or the systems work, but they do right. seem to be very hit and miss. Okay, back to Bristol Rovers then. Sorry, but back to Bristol Rovers. So so in twenty twenty, um, they they did set up a new board of directors, um, and these people appeared to. In, believe in communication, which mm. which is always good. Mm. Um, there was a fans representative on the board, um, and things were clearly there, there was some bad blood uh, between the, the the fans representative uh, on the board and the club. And and, I, and I'm I've tried to get further into this, but I'm still not certain what's going on. Mm. That that fans rep ended up resigning, hasn't been replaced. Um, I think that's due to a bit of a toxic relationship, which my understanding is starting to thaw. So, so that that would be good if if we do have you know, fan communication on board. Um, the other sort of elephant in the room, it, it, with in respect of Bristol Rovers, is stadium. Mm. They've been playing at the Memorial Ground now since. Uh, well, I mean, I, I can remember going to Bath to see them play mm. to, to Bath Rugby Club, mm. and, and, and sadly, I, I never got to Eastland. So it's one of my big regrets as a as a you know train spotter. Um, Eastville, but, East wasn't it? Eastville, Eastville. Sorry, yeah, yeah. yeah. that's all right. Um, so there has been talk about a new stadium, and that's sort of come and gone. I think if that progressed, that would certainly help to push the club forwards. I mean, at present, they've you know they're at the towards the wrong end of League One. They've just sacked the manager, 
you know, th- things aren't great on the field, which which tends to uh, make uh, tensions between owners and fans grow mm. uh, even worse. So, sorry, just to clarify, Kieran, this um, Steve Cutler talks about the new forward thinking and big picture ball, but that's not as a result of a, a takeover, a new owner, is it? It's just a different approach by that owner to the fans. Is that right? That's right. So, right. so, so, Wael El Cardi, um, you know, he's he he has been seen and he has spoken to the local press, but I think he feels now that having people having a sort of a dedicated commercial director and, and chief executive who want to be more fan facing is beneficial, and, and you know that that's an approach I, I would always encourage for all clubs because uh, you you can you can solve an awful lot of problems by talking to people. Hmm. It's a mystery, Bristol, isn't it? Because it's you know, we always talk about Plymouth. Why why on earth has Plymouth never you know with that huge catchment area? Blah blah blah, sleeping giant. Blah blah blah. But Bristol, I mean, Bristol sh- should be able to sustain two Premier League clubs, let alone one and a, a Championship club, shouldn't it? But it never seems to quite happen for Bristol football for reasons that we probably haven't got time to explain, have we? Yeah, I think I think we were asked, weren't we, a few a few weeks ago to sort of name four or five clubs who were who'd never been in the Premier League, who could get there. And we said Plymouth were one, and I think we said Bristol City uh, was another one. Um, it, it's certainly got the infrastructure there. Uh, Bristol City are owned by, a, uh, yeah, funnily enough, a, a guy that lives in the Channel Islands who, who, is, a, who is a billionaire. Um, it, but that area of the country is, is rugby-focused as much as football. And, true, and I think perhaps yeah. we, we don't really, because you know, we, we are so football-orientated, we, we don't realise that actually it's, it's not just a split between uh, the two football clubs. There's rugby as well. But then you could say the same about places in Yorkshire. You, know, you, yeah, you of think about the strength of, of, uh, league, of yeah. Super League. Um, so, so it, it's a tricky one. And, and, so the Bristol City and then fans. On to pensions. Well, before we do that, I think we should acknowledge disgruntled Bristol City fans. If you're looking for someone to blame for your recent terrible run of form, it's Kieran Maguire for suggesting that you should be a Premier League club. So <laughs> yes. that'll, that'll teach you. Anyway, sorry about that. How do, I'm doing really Kieran, well when I said when I when I suggested it. Yeah. Kieran, I've got a question for you. How do how do footballers' pensions work, Kieran? Well, um, historically, I, I remember when I was doing my tax exams, which was. 1985 and 86 um footballers used to be able to draw down a pension from from the t- from the uh, when they reached the age of 35 oh. um but i think the rules have changed since then um what what clubs do these days is that they they just run as a similar similar scheme to uh other organizations there is a football league pension scheme which which has a deficit, um, which I think the clubs have contributed into getting rid of that deficit. But players um, and and clubs simply pay it pay these days in, into a fund, um, and, and that's used to invest. And then when you when you reach retirement age, uh, in terms of I think you have to be sixty along with the rest of the population, you'll be able to draw a pension down from it. So it's it, it's no different to any other industry. That seems well. It doesn't seem harsh if you're if you're working in a different occupation. But we've been talking to people like Dean Hammond recently about footballers and finances. And if you retire at the age of thirty-five and you've still got twenty-five years to wait for the pension that you've been paying some considerable amount into, that seems that seems harsh. But then presumably you would you would advise them all to have private pension schemes, which presumably can be released earlier than that. Yes, but but also even if you are a professional footballer who has 
you know, spe- spent the majority of your career in the top two divisions. If you retire at 35, your your life expectancy realistically is going to be you know, 80 to 85. So you know, to get a pension to pay out a decent sum of money for 50 years, you'd have to have paid a huge amount into it to begin with. So I think to a certain extent, it makes sense to uh, to say to players, you've, you've got to think of alternative ways of, of generating income beyond football, because otherwise you, the pension you'll be receiving will be worth buttons. And you know, the, the transition from going from being on you know, good money you know, c- compared to, to the average wage to a, a footballer's pension would be pretty tough if you've still got mortgage, you've got kids, mm. uh, you know, family commitments and so on. It, it simply wouldn't be worth receiving. Um, so uh, I, you know, I think the 35 was, was an error uh, because players were told, you know, and you know, I'm, go- I'm going back you know, to thir- 35 years when I was doing my exams, um, players were told, oh, you can draw your pension when you're 35. And players thought, oh, that's sound. You know, I, I can I can retire. Uh, I'll be getting a decent sum of money from the pension, and then when they when they did find out the amounts that were being paid in the pension, they realised they couldn't afford to live, and that's when they had to go back into finding alternative forms of employment. Mm. I left the ambulance service in 1988, and I recently had a letter inviting me to apply for the pension, which is both nice and also terrifying in a little bit of way, but also made me really paranoid because just first thing I said to Ali was, "How did I get my address?" I've lived in loads of places since 1988. How did they know where I am now? That really worried me. Uh, there you go. That shows that I was insensible enough to pay the compulsory pension for seven years when I was a young man, and now I'm reaping the benefit of a couple of hundred quid. Um, it's a lump sum. I've never had a lump sum before, so I'm delighted with that. Uh, Robert Wood. Now, Robert Wood has a new angle on iFollow, uh, but with Robert's new angle, I'm going to draw the line under iFollow for a while because we've been talking about it just about every week, and I think we've squeezed most of it out. But um, Robert says initially, so this is probably just a little bit of context for new listeners, Uh, initially, says Robert, um, uh, with barely any Sky matches in the lower two divisions, how popular is the iFollow service and how much money are clubs making from it? And what makes pay-per-view so much more worthwhile for League One and League Two clubs but not Premier League clubs who presumably would attract a huge number of subscribers. Hi, I'm Steve Lamack, and every week I'm joined by Music Allies Head of Insight Stuart Dredge on The Price of Music, the weekly podcast all about the money behind the music industry. In each episode, we discuss the very latest goings on in the music business and dig into the finances behind the big stories. So whether you're a music lover who just wants to know more about what really goes on in the industry, or you're an aspiring musician, manager or label owner who wants some inside knowledge on how Spotify's financial model really works, or what the future holds for independent live music venues, this is a show for you. Subscribe to The Price of Music in your podcast app now. See you soon. Right, so, so there are clearly it's two issues here. Um, the take-up of iFollow, I think, has been uh, spectacularly good in the main four clubs in League One and Two. Um, th- there were problems initially in terms of the quality of the service, trying to get a, uh, you know, trying to get a download and so on. Um, those have, in the main, been addressed. It's still not perfect, um, and, and we are seeing. Um, We've we've got clubs 
such as Ipswich, who are getting you know, 8,000 people signing in for iFollow for a home match. Now, they get £8.33 per ticket sold because it's, it's £10 oh, so yeah. and, and you've got to take VAT yeah, out yeah, of that. Yeah, yeah. So it's, uh, it's substantially less um, than, uh, than they would get from match day, but it's, it's money coming in. Um, we are seeing, uh, interestingly, clubs doing very well, the, the bigger clubs in, in League One. So the likes of Sunderland, Pompey and Ipswich, the likes of Bolton, in uh, in League Two, um, they are getting quite often, you know, three thousand or more. Uh, I, I follow passes being sold for away matches. So again, more money um, to, to benefit those clubs, and 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 they certainly, you know, and, and our friends at Lincoln that they're getting seventeen hundred mm. for, for away fans. And given you know, no disrespect to Lincoln, um, we're we're on really good terms with the club, and uh, as an away fan, I've always enjoyed my trips there. It's a long way from most away matches, so you know. For them to be able to sell seventeen hundred tickets um, is is good news for for both the home team and themselves. Um, so that that's where we are. It, it has it has certainly helped. Now, in respect of the Premier League, I in my view, and, and I know we've got friends in the broadcasting in, industry that will probably you know, hold me to account on this. Mm. I, I think the Premier League have been spectacularly outmaneuvered and oh. outsmarted oh, by okay. the broadcasters. Right. If you, I, I would be willing to pay to watch my team each week. Mm. I would not be keen on paying fifteen quid. Mm. So the broadcasters set the price at fifteen quid, and then the fans groups and the FSA have been involved in this. The FSA, if you take a look at their documentation, their view is we're not opposed to pay per view in principle, but we don't think it's value for money at fifteen quid a pop. Yeah. So. If if Sky and BT and said right, it's going to be a tenner, then yeah, we, we'd have moaned. Yeah, yeah, given a choice between watching something for nothing or paying a tenner, I'd rather watch it for nothing. But I think an awful lot of fans would have uh, signed up. If, if you take a look, I think at some of the matches, I think Arsenal versus Leicester, yeah. one hundred and forty thousand yeah. passes yeah. Were sold. You know, and we're saying League One, eight thousand is good. Yeah, one hundred and forty thousand, and that was at fifteen pounds a pop. That's two point one million pounds worth of revenue mm. for a single match um again substantially less than arsenal would normally get but yeah it's still 2 million quid yeah. so what what we've been left with now is the broadcasters paid to show half of the matches in the premier league they've ended up being given the whole lot without having to pay any more money mm. and we as fans are not having to pay any more money either so the clubs have been maneuvered yeah you know, part of this is a cultural thing that we think that you know subscribing to sky and bt gives us the right to watch every match but you take yourself back 12 months mm. and sky and bt have paid for 160 games out of the 300 mm. 380 so now we're seeing 380 games on tv um it, it's it, it's a little bit of uh, yeah, negotiation uh, cleverness, in my view, by the broadcasters. Mm, it would be interesting to hear what our friends in the broadcasting industry say about that, because it's it, well, it always seems to me like you're right, Kieran. So there's nothing new for me saying that. Our next question comes from a Watford fan, and we won't hold that against him. Joe Etchells, uh, hello, Joe. Uh, Joe Etchells says that Watford recently announced 
their new higher education partner, which is a university campus of football business. What will each of the parties get from this partnership, says Joe? Presumably UCFB will pay to have their logo visible alongside our principal sponsors, but the word partnership implies more than mere sponsorship. Does it mean Watford players and staff, and perhaps fans, for example, could benefit from an education pathway, or is it simply sponsorship being labelled as a partnership? Um, if, if, if you talk to people in the commercial departments of clubs and uh, Paul O'Brien of of Watford, mm. the, their commercial director has actually been on on the, on the podcast. Indeed. So, uh, yeah, he, he's uh, he, he's he's a big fan of ours, and vice versa. He's, he's a very interesting guy to talk to. Um, UCFB is a dedicated football college, university college. Um, it's got campuses at uh, Wembley, at the Etihad, and Turf Moor. I've I've taught at all three of them. I've given guest talks there. Um, you know, they've, they've got some smart people working there. They've also got bases in Miami, New York, Toronto, Melbourne, places like that. Mm-hmm. Um, they want to increase their profile. Right. So, you know, as far as they're, they're concerned, it's uh, by having a relationship with Watford. It, it does mean that people will be saying, "Well, what does that UCFB stand for?" Mm, and perhaps yeah. investigate a bit further. Um, from Watford's point of view, I would imagine uh, you know the likes of Paul will now pop along and perhaps give a couple of guest talks. Increases the profile of the club. They might be in a position where they can offer placements to some of the UCFB students because they've now got a, a closer relationship. Uh, and and, and the, the one thing I say to to everybody who's trying to get into the football business, ultimately, there's only 92 clubs. doesn't matter yeah, how many yeah. colleges there are offering courses. There's only 92 clubs. What you've got to do is you've got to network. Yeah, And it's a horrible, horrible word. Uh, I, I hate it. You know, the idea of Talking to people, it makes me, you know, I'm just not a natural at it in terms of small talk and things of that nature. But from a business point of view, it's absolutely critical. So it will allow Watford perhaps to offer a couple of placements to work on projects. UCFB students will benefit from that. Watford will be able to perhaps go in and talk to the kids at the at the at the Wembley campus and the Etihad campus, and they might and then they say, well, that guy he asked a really some really smart questions let's take this a step further so so there are there are mutual benefits of building up relationships with organizations such as these we, we do exactly the same at liverpool yeah you know, I'll, I'll be honest yeah you know, we, mm. we we have uh, our, our students going out and placement to to clubs in the premier league and and, and uh, overseas as well i'm i'm with you on the networking thing the amount of times I'll be at some kind of broadcasting doing somebody say, oh, there's a head of BBC comedy there. Do you want to go and say hello? No. <laughs> yes. uh, not really. If he wants if, if he wants me, he knows. <laughs> the NHS know where I live. He can find out where I live as well. <laughs> it's, but it's a terrible, it's, a, it's the wrong attitude because you, unfortunately, some people are better at it than others, but you do need to build up. You know, it's in the same way that people leave university with a network of contacts, you do need to do it. But um, anything that provides education is good by the price of football. So we wish the UCFB obviously uh, the best with that. Our next question is from Evan Morgan, uh, which is um, quite a chippy question, but it's one that's probably worth. <laughs> yeah. It's a it's a bit of a doomsday scenario, but it's 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 worth it's one worth asking. Evan says that we've heard all about the City Football Group and their successful strategy um, for world domination, basically. But Evan says, I wonder if the dystopian future world of football looks like a City Football League formed of franchise City Group clubs that hoover up talent for an American-style 
draft system. After all, they have clubs all over the world already. I suspect Evan may be a United fan, Kieran. <laughs> it could be. <laughs> it is a bit of a doomsday sign, but I, I, I doubt very much whether City uh, owners are in their lair underneath a volcano going, oh, oh damn, Evan's seen through our plan. But um, we're, I know we're not looking at a, few, a world where the whole football globe is made up of Man City group, are we? No, no. Uh, and also, I think you've got to look at it from a cultural point of view. Who do Manchester City want to beat more than any other club on the planet? It, it's not It's not Melbourne City. It's not New York City. It's not Mumbai City. It's Manchester United. It's yeah. Liverpool. It's Leeds. You know, so it, um, and, and that's part of football culture. And, and that's is is one of the the Premier League's unique selling points and uh, I think that's never been more evident than what we've seen over the course of the last 6 or 7 months. Yeah. You know, un- under normal circumstances you and I would not be polite at all to each other today even though uh, you know we're supposed to be doing a professional podcast because the match is taking place later uh you know late later on Monday night and, and it's it's impossible to be pleasant to a Palace Palace fan on match day and and that's how it should be. And then after the match, you can sort of we can sort of grow up a bit. But uh, it so I, th- I think from a from a football culture point of view, the fact that we have these amazing rivalries in the Premier League, in in the in the EFL, and so on, um, is is part of what makes the product so attractive and brings in global interest. If it's one franchise versus another. I think there'll be so much cynicism that you know, matches are effectively being manipulated for, uh, you know, for, for whatever purposes that uh, they would struggle to to build a, a much interest in it. Yeah, I'd like to point out, Kieran, that whether we grow up after the game tonight is entirely dependent on what the score is. To be perfectly honest, <laughs> if you if you win, and I will expect a mature adult approach from both of us, but I'm not going to promise that if we win. Um, <laughs> and, and well, basically, I mean, this is the the other side to Evans' uh, worries is a, a proper good news story. And Jamie Bennett, um, and I apologise because I, I tried to work out the proper pronunciation of this, but I couldn't even work out the phonetic alphabet when I looked it up. But Jamie Bennett talks about Norwegian club Berder Glimt, uh, who recently won their first league title in Norway and in a stadium that holds around 7,000 people. Uh, Jamie says, can Kieran detect any financial secrets behind this unlikely rise? Or is it simply the sort of romantic sporting achievement all too rare in modern football? Uh, it's the it's the latter. Um, I, I went to uh, I, I took a look at the sort of try to look at the financial records uh, and bits of pieces of that nature. The, the average attendance of uh, of Buda Glint is three thousand. So wow. you know it, it's it's not significant. They, they've done really well. Uh, they they won the uh, the Norwegian. Uh, main league by by 19 points last season. They only just got uh, beaten by Milan 3-2 in in the playoffs for the Europa League. Um, And uh, according to the the scouting organisations, it's simply because they've got the the best scout in in Scandinavian football. I think his name is uh, Kjetil Knudsen. and uh, he's got them playing a style of football which everybody understands, and you know, some, sometimes keeping it simple is all you need. Uh, and by all accounts, it's it's uh, it, it works. Uh, they've they've had no injuries. They put out a consistent eleven or fourteen, uh, you know, in terms of, of the substitutions. And, and on the back of that, they've been they've been winning matches left, right, and centre. 
It is a great story, isn't it? That 3,000 is slightly concerning. As I remember being in Oslo talking to fans of many English clubs, Norwegian fans, and they all of them said they kind of patronise their local team and look out for the result, but they wouldn't particularly dream of going to see a Norwegian club play football as long as they could afford to fly to England. So, that again, it's a wonderful romantic story, but the dread hand of the Premier League is still involved, isn't it? Yeah, and it's similar to what we were saying in respect of, of Northern Ireland. I mean, mm. yeah, I've, I've lived in Manchester, or I lived in Manchester for 40 years. I've worked in Liverpool most of my working life. Um, and you know, on, on a Saturday night in Manchester or Liverpool, when Manchester United or Liverpool are playing at home, the you, you cannot find a hotel yeah. because yeah, yeah. you know it's, there are football tourists coming in, which is great for the local economy. Oh, of course. Um, and... Uh, you know, drunken Scandinavians, because clearly our our alcohol prices compared to theirs are substantially lower, are uh, an amazing uh, local cultural phenomenon these days. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Unless you're right in the middle of one of them, but that was, that was fine. It was it was fun. <laughs> Two weeks afterwards, it was fun. Um, now, Mark Fleckney has a question that you and I, Kieran, uh, ironically, um, you don't drink, but you probably won't remember this. Uh, I do, or it's a fake memory. But you, this is a question you and I actually discussed in our first ever meeting in a pub, the Blue Posts in London's fashionable Fitzrovia. Oh, God, I miss pubs. Um, Mark has some sub-questions, but I, I want to concentrate on the big one. And, again, it's probably something we could talk about in the entire book. But basically, says, Mark, can England actually sustain 92 professional league clubs? And I think this is a really good question historically, Kieran, because – it's not a massive country, and yet it has 92 professional football clubs. Well, it has more than 92 professional football clubs. Of, of because course it does, yes, the, of course. The, the National yeah. League is effectively Division 5. Oh, yeah, fair point. Um, and it used to be, you know, I think when, when you and I first started going to football, I, mean, I, I was living in Chelmsford, I used to go and watch Chelmsford City. They they, they were not a full-time club. They were they were in the, the old Southern League. Um and there was never any, never any chance of them thinking of going full time. Mm. Um, but we've now got, you know, two thirds of the clubs in the uh, in the national league are, are full time. Um, is it sustainable? Part of me says no because the clubs are all losing money. You know, twenty three out of twenty four in the in the national league were losing money. I think um, the, the the vast majority of the clubs in in League One and League Two, the championships, a car crash, and so on. So. How has it survived? How has it sustained itself in recent years, given those circumstances? Um, it's come to you. It's come down to the fact that football attracts people with money to own them, mm. and it is the the funding model which has come from uh, you know, rich people coming in or modestly rich, rich people coming in to. Uh, allow the clubs to make losses and underwrite those losses, which has uh, has allowed us to still have ninety two clubs. Um, if if they were to stop that funding, um, what would happen? Well, my gut reaction would be that we would still probably have ninety two football clubs, but wage levels would would fall as a result of that, mm. um, because ultimately wait. Wages are driven by income, and we've got the sort of the the, the standard income plus the owners' money coming in, which is which is then paid out to the players. So if if you if you reduce the income, yeah, you know, whether that's from TV, match day, or whatever, um, 
that's that's going to have uh, an impact. My, my biggest concern about the sustainability of English football is what's happening in in the Champions League because if we go from a yeah we, 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 we yeah we, we we laugh about the Europa Conference but if the Champions League proposals which are to go from 125 to 225 matches a season mm. something's got to give and the, the the value of the domestic TV deals are likely to fall and given that clubs are significantly dependent upon solidarity payments being dropped down from the the Premier League in, into the lower leagues, I, I think that could be um, very dangerous unless clubs manage to get costs under control, um, and and that's kicking in in twenty twenty four. And you know, I know we say, well, the Super League's not going to take place. This isn't going to take place. All that's going to happen is that the that the the Super League proposed by JP Morgan and Joel Joel Glazer and Co. Um, it's a lot of that is going to be embedded into the new Champions League format to keep those clubs um, from from you know jumping ship and forming their own competition. Hmm. This next question is sort of linked. I'm going to give producer guy the benefit of the doubt here and say he didn't just throw all the questions up in the air and see what happened. It comes from Kevin Wilson, and I think this is a very interesting question, actually. Of course, all our questions are interesting, but this is an aspect that we haven't really discussed. And Kevin says, with Scotland qualifying for the Euros, how much is this worth uh, to the SFA? And also, this is a really interesting question. Is there an estimated account uh, for how you would judge what qualifying can do for a national economy? Now, because that's a good question, Kim. We often talk about the economic benefits of a successful club on the local community, but how about on the country as a whole? Right. Um, in terms of the, the first part of Kevin's question, um, what I did is I went in uh, to the accounts of the Football Association of Wales for 2016 because Wales qualified for mm. the Euros that year. Yeah, yeah. Um, their revenue doubled from 10 to 20 million. So it had a, a huge impact upon uh, the, the capacity of the, the, the Welsh Football Association to then you know, invest in grassroots and things of mm. that nature. So it, it will have a, a significant impact. Uh, the Scottish Football Association generates around about 35 to 40 million. I, th- I think you know, potentially we're looking at 10 million on top. Um, that will be tempered, of course, if, if no fans are able to attend matches. So going back to sort of one of the topics we were looking at earlier, mm. um, it would be good if we could have crowds for a variety of reasons, mm. of course. Um, so that that would be positive. In terms of impact upon gross, dom- gross domestic product, i.e. the economy as a whole, um, I think we have to be a little bit careful here because you will see in sort of the mainstream media, um, and this isn't, I'm not going all Donald Trump here, uh, criticising the mainstream media. Um, there'll, there'll be talk of, you know, it, it's it's a boom time for the economy. You know, the pubs are full. Yeah, and, and let, let's park COVID to one side. Let's assume that we've made sufficient progress by the time we get to June that, that people can socialise. Um, w- what we talk about from an economic perspective is what's referred to as a zero-sum game. If, if more money is being spent by consumers on hospitality and food and drink, by definition, you must be spending less money on other things. Mm. So if people, are going, if people are going, right, well, Scotland are paying you know, such and such tonight, the cinemas will be empty. 
the theatres, uh, you yes, know, people, yeah. um, people won't be going out to, to restaurants because they'll be going to the pubs instead. Yeah. So they won't necessarily be spending more money. They will be spending money which is very much concentrated on individual industry. So in a World Cup year, and if you take a look at uh, – yeah, yeah, I'm a bit of a geek. Uh, if it, in a World Cup year, the sales of televisions go up. Because what do we do? Well, we, you know, I have some of my mates around. Want to impress them? Yeah, you get so lots of people going out and they're buying the you know the latest fifty-five inch eight K television with Dolby this that and the other. So you know, John Lewis and Curry's do really well in in the three months leading up to the set of the World Cup because mm. blokes being blokes, they they like gadgets. So so, but that means that they're not spending money on other things. Um, then you come to the the economic impact on the country which is hosting the tournament. Now I appreciate that you know Scot- Scotland is is a partial host. Um, what we have seen, and, and I've taken a look a look at economic impact reports, is that when a company, so when a country is pitching to host the World Cup, it will get in a firm of management consultants who will put out a glossy 60 or 70 page brochure to convince the government it's a really good idea saying you know it's, it increases exposure for the country you've got all these tourists coming there'll be legacy benefits because people will get more into sport so therefore there will be a, a positive impact on national health which will reduce the, the the necessity you know in terms of the national health service and, and all of these things and it's all it's all hogwash it's all absolute nonsense uh, I, I went to the World Cup in 2010 in South Africa, had a fantastic time, absolutely glorious. South African people, superb hosts, met so many people from, from other countries. So from a cultural point of view, uh, going to matches, it was absolutely wonderful. Went back to South Africa uh, a couple of years later with the Baroness um, and, and in Cape Town, the, the stadium is now mothballed. Yeah, yeah. Um, mm. It was exactly the same in Brazil in 2016. You've got train links to stadiums where the stadium's no longer being used, mm. so therefore the train link gets mothballed. So uh, in terms of the positive economic impact, it is vastly overstated. They normally end up costing the country that is hosting money, but the politicians love it because they get to go to the final, they get to have their photographs next to Cristiano Ronaldo, which is good for them when they next get re-elected. They can also go to the population two years before the World Cup is hosted and say, look, I've delivered you the World Cup, mm. vote for me. So, so economically, it's actually a disaster, but for, for other reasons, these things tend to, uh, they, they tend to be promoted very positively. Yeah. Yeah. Uh- Two things. Well, three things, actually. One of the things we didn't say when we talked about the good news about the Euros possibly being in in England and hopefully Scotland, the one thing there won't be is any away fans, I'm guessing. So all those Scottish fans already packing their bags probably can start unpacking. But also, Karen, I'm on a bound to point out, because Ali would ask me to say, so it's not just blokes who like gadgets. Remember, you're, you're talking here to a man who still disapproves of Walkmans. Uh, <laughs> Ali, Ali loves a gadget. Um, and also, Kira, <laughs> we need to have this conversation. I, I don't know why you lower your voice. I don't even know if you know you do it, Kieran, but when you say I'm a bit of a geek, 
you always lower your voice and approach the microphone as though you're telling us something we didn't already know. <laughs> it's not coming as a surprise to any of us, no, Kieran. Guess not. Trust me. Um, funny enough, our last question, which is coming up after our penultimate question, involves Cristiano Ronaldo. But the, these last two questions are um, clever, if, if not slightly sinister. Chris Edge. <laughs> Chris Edge says, if, God forbid, and I've added to God forbid, um, if, God forbid, a League Two player picked up a season-ending injury this weekend, would it be possible to put them on furlough to save a few quid? Also, if a player is suspended after a red card comes, could they be furloughed for just a month? Devious, Chris, devious. Um, You can be furloughed for a period of a month, but normally furlough requires the agreement of the employee. So if if you've got a player who has had a red card, um, whilst he will be suspended for three games, in theory, he he would not be allowed to attend training because if he attends training, he is acting as a form of employment. Ah, Um, So I don't think they get away with it. In terms of the career-ending injury, um, if if I was that player, I, I wouldn't agree to furlough. Um, unless the club agreed to top up my wages to the, the full level, level yeah. because otherwise I'm just going to end up with eighty percent of you know a maximum of two thousand five hundred pounds a month, and I and I could be in a far more lucrative contract yeah. than that. Um, so it, it's it's an interesting one. Um, I, I think some clubs might try to persuade players to go along with that, um, and. Where where we stand from an ethical point of view, because yeah, you know, we talk about furlough, but it, it's its proper name is the job retention it's, scheme. Yes, of course, yeah. you know, so, some somebody somebody who has a career ending injury, by definition, there isn't any there isn't a job being retained. Yeah. Sadly, yeah. Now our final question, Kieran, and I I like this question because it's the sort of question that you ask your mates in the pub, and then you'll go, well, why can't I do that? basically, and somebody will go, well, you just can't, but you may be able to supply the answer. Joe Gill. Joe Gill said, can I legally change my name to Cristiano Ronaldo, then sell footballs signed by Cristiano Ronaldo? Well, you could change your name to Price of Football, Joe, and then try and shift a shed load of mugs if you want to. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) But it's it's one of those questions, it's inevitably, somebody will say this to you, why why can't I just change my name to Cristiano Ronaldo? I'm I'm guessing the answer, Kieran, is that he can't. But... Uh, he he can legally change his name. Uh, I I remember a a rapper who changed his name to Clint Eastwood. (laughs) Okay. Um, And it wasn't rapper, it was, yeah, this is a long way back. Yeah. we, we then enter into the world of passing off. Yes. If you are uh, acting in a manner where you are potentially infringing somebody's uh, intellectual property rights, and you know, we, we had this discussion a few months ago when Liverpool Football Club tried to claim the rights to the yeah. word Liverpool. Yeah, yeah. Um, and, you know, Clearly, under those circumstances, the club wasn't going to be successful because, uh, as somebody that works in Liverpool, uh, you know, we are we are famous for a few other things in in the town. There's, there's a few pop beat combos yeah. who have who have sold the odd single or two. So, so they weren't successful there. Um, if if you were trying to do that with Cristiano Ronaldo, um, he has uh, he's got the intellectual property. He's got a trademark in terms of his signature. 
So if you try to sign footballs with a signature which is similar to his, then you would be in breach of that tr- those those issues. Yeah, and, 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 and I know we've got lawyers who know this far far more depth than I. So I'm not going to go too much this, but you would probably. Yeah, I, I've got I've got members of the family who uh, know one or two things about forgery. And uh, I, I had a chat with uh, with one of my cousins, and he said, "Yeah, he he wouldn't go down that particular route. He, he, you'd be far better off just doing other things." I mean, he he used to go and uh, he used to go and sell uh, forged autographs, but he didn't claim to be the person. He just claimed to be an autograph collector. So I, I think if Joe is going to try to make money um, down that particular route, um, I, I wouldn't go down the the changing his name route. Right. If uh, if we get a letter in a year's time from Joe Gill, who's in Pentonville for selling forged autographs, then we will know exactly who to blame. As he's taken the wrong advice here, isn't he? It's um, it's interesting, Kieran. Does it mean, yeah, you know, every now and again you'll see a story. We had a, a story in in South London a couple of years back when a local burger bar opened up, and they called themselves McDonald's. Yeah, and, <laughs> you know what I mean, but when it's and when, but when it's in the local, it's in the local paper, and you think that's quite funny. But you, but then, of course, the next thing you hear is that McDonald's lawyers have just said they're not they're not doing that because you think no matter how trivial these things are, those multi million billion corporations aren't going to let you get away with it. And I imagine Cristiano Ronaldo's lawyers are probably wise to this sort of move as well, aren't they? Oh, oh yes, without doubt. Uh, you know they're he has a uh, an army of advisors who are protecting his uh, his image rights uh, on a daily basis i can assure you yes well if you want to have a question answered for next week's questions pod it's questions at priceoffootball.com this may be the last pod for a couple of weeks that in which kieran and i are talking to each other uh, so i will politely hand you over to kieran to say goodbye in his usual inimitable way Thank you. Thank you. Uh, thanks for all the feedback, folks. Uh, if, if you are enjoying the show, if you can click on the subscribe button, uh, if you can give us a review, ideally a five-star review, you, you can write whatever you want. Uh, we don't We don't care. Um, you can say that uh, Crystal Palace and Brighton isn't a proper rivalry. Oh. Uh, well, we would care about that because we, we both know that it is. But other than that... Um, just look look after yourselves and stay safe. And uh, yeah, let's hope that we are able to host the Euro 2020 tournament and attend and go and see some football sooner rather than later. Here, here. The price of football. I'm for the